0: Andrei Rublev, the 1966 landmark by Andrei Tarkovsky, has been newly restored and is now playing exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The Guardian calls Andrei Rublev the greatest arthouse film of all time and as close to transcendence as cinema gets. Tickets available now.
1: Hello, welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm here at the Venice Film Festival, uh, which is getting into its sixth day, I think it is. So well underway, uh, and some of the more highly anticipated films I've already shown here. And I'm very happy to run through some of the highlights and low moments too, with Jonathan Romney, who is a contributing editor of Film Comment and also a frequent contributor to Screen Daily and Sight and Sound. Uh, and I'm Nick Rapold, editor-in-chief of Film Comment. And we're taking it comparatively easy here compared to the Cannes, <laughs> which I think is more of a manageable pace, but maybe that's more in spirit with the festival, which I think is a bit less punishing uh, than, than the Cannes Festival.
2: Yeah, there's all something wonderful about Venice. It's very leisurely. I mean, we're sitting here in a garden in the cafe at about 4.30 in the afternoon, and I'm looking around and everyone's drinking Aperol spritz and they're these sort of bright orange drinks and everyone's sitting around. You don't see people just sitting around in Cannes very much. People are running around in a state of high agitation. <laughs> I and mean, the great thing about Venice, it is really relaxed. And somehow this year, I think everyone thought that we were going to be in a frenzy because the competition is packed with films by big names and a lot of them are extremely long. But it's still surprisingly relaxing. You know, there's nothing to panic about Conversely, I don't think there's been that much to get wildly excited about because these big names have largely produced satisfying films. There's been very little that's been really bad, but very little also you know, that kind of turns your head inside out and thinks, ah, cinema has has changed radically. (laughs) Um, And you hope in in every festival you're going to get one film that kind of makes your hair stand on it. And here last year not so much for me but certainly for a lot of people it was uh three billboards and i can see why um, or something truly dreadful and spectacular like mother which <laughs> just kind of left jaws uh dangling again there hasn't been quite anything like that but it's been yeah. generally satisfying and interesting festival so yeah, far so and far. That, you know there's more to come yeah, that, I'll just
1: quickly editorialize and say that was exact opposite. I would flip those two titles for me. Um, Mother was the kind of mind-bender that, that kind of opened things out for me and in a way came to mind when I was watching Suspiria, actually, in terms of, I don't know, anxieties about maternal powers uh, or forces, uh, whereas Three Billboards was the movie that turned my stomach inside out, I guess I'd, I'd say. <laughs> but let's start out with probably one of the, three most anticipated uh, films, if you had to count, which would be Roma, Alfonso Cuaron's films, drawn very autobiographically from his you know childhood in Mexico City, but largely kept under wraps, so there was a lot of anticipation about it, and it's a Netflix uh, title, so it comes with a lot of muscle <laughs> behind it, you could say. Well, Jonathan, I think you were very struck about
3: it. You wrote about it very eloquently last week. Uh, I don't know if you want to elaborate on your enthusiasm for it. Yeah, I thought Roma was extraordinary. One of the things about it
2: is that it has nothing to recommend it except itself. You know, this is an Alfonso Cuaron film. It hasn't got any known actors in it at all. It has... I know, there's one um, professional actor who I think is primarily... Um, a stage name in uh, Mexico. Um, largely non-professional cast. It hasn't got anything spectacular going on for it, story-wise. It is simply, you can say, an old-school humanist art film. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's done with extraordinary beauty and extraordinary depth. It's basically uh, the story of a young woman, an indigenous woman, um domestic servant, in uh, a household in Mexico, um, a bourgeois household, where as the maid she is at once um, a domestic, the person who is told, you know, clean up the dog shit now. But at the same time, she's part of the family, and there's clearly, you know, real reciprocal love between her yeah. and the mother of the household, because the father has left or is leaving at the beginning of the film, and the four children and a very unruly um, and entertaining dog. Um, (laughs) Now the thing about the film is Quaron has shot it himself in black and white really beautifully with with a kind of silvery, you know, it has that sort of silvery sheen that um, good black and white still photos traditionally have. He's also reconstructed apparently and very authentically uh, and in detail his childhood home in the uh, Colonia Roma area of Mexico City and in certain sequences he reconstructs on a very big scale although it's a deeply intimate film but certain sequences do a really big scale reconstruction of certain events um, in Mexico in 1970-71. There are are big street scenes with lots of extras, there's a notorious massacre that happens. Um, and it's an immensely powerful film, but it's history seen, first of all, from you know the private domestic point of view. It's the story of a servant and her life, her personal traumas, but very much integrated both into Mexican history and into the life of the family. And there are extraordinary set pieces. I mean, the the, the massacre is seen in the street, but it's seen from inside the furniture store where the maid who is pregnant is being bought a cradle for the child she's about to have. There's also an extraordinary scene in the maternity ward where she's looking at the newborns in their incubators and there's an earthquake and uh, rubble is seen kind of resting on the incubator, there's a baby inside. Um, And these incredibly rich moments, also extraordinary scene on the beach, um, a kind of climactic scene in which she risks her life on the beach and it's done in a tracking shot which completely engulfs you. It's very simple, but at the same time, the precision and the preparation um, and the investment of the actors um, in this extraordinary emotional moment. I mean, it's a really, really extraordinary film. For me, it's head and shoulders in emotional terms, but also in in terms of um, execution, head and shoulders above anything else here, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I admire the film... I guess the, the word for me that comes to mind for is I, I was just Im- impressed by it uh, more than I was always engaged by it. Um, because for me, sometimes, I absolutely, the technique is, is just, you know, um, quite uh, uh, grand and impressive. But it also tended to, like, distance me sometimes. And it felt like a movie that was also, also like, packed with incident and packed with event. And I know part of that's the point of kind of putting side by side the... Quotidian, you know, struggles, and then also the big personal struggles right next to like bigger things happening. But it did sometimes feel like everything was in the movie, <laughs> you know, like every single
3: possible type of experience was going to be in the movie. And although he does say that everything in the movie, pretty much happened. everything in the movie, it, an it really time. happened, and yeah. it may have happened in
2: those two years. <laughs>
1: two years. No, it's true. It's it's just it, it just uh, it was it was somehow. A lot to take it take it all. And, and then it would take me out of some of those dramatic sequences a bit. For example, the Corpus Christi uh, massacre. Just the way the use of the camera movement in that shot, it kind of felt like it was a, a tour that was being given. Like it would pan across person, past a person, or, or, I don't know, Dolly, past a person who was shooting. And they'd shoot once, sit down, beat, get up. Shoot again, sit down, and beat, and then you would sort of dwell on a person who's, you know, offering solace to an injured person. So it was just somehow, it reminded me of someone, I forget if it was, a, I forget who it was, describing like the scenes and children of men, uh, you know, where they're in the car and they're going and then they have to like go in reverse and everything. And all you can think during that sequence, this person and said, How did they shoot it? is how did they shoot
3: it? And like you can imagine people off you know, off-screen going, go, 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 okay, back, back,
2: back. Yeah, exactly, but but
3: actually, I mean, I was very aware of him as someone
2: who had kind of become a great technician, you know, in Children of the Man and Gravity, where um, he worked with uh, the DOP Emmanuel Lubesky and, you know, you could almost think, well, really, those are Lubezki's films, but this very much proves that he's not. I mean, I think mm-hmm. he's a brilliant DOP, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a very personal very hands-on film it's the ultimate auteur cinema you know in the sense that he wants to create those
3: images that are in his his mind and in his memory yeah that's true no it's it's absolutely (laughs) auteurific it's very personal and just you know harnessed to this uh, you know, strength of of, of, yeah. of vision, muscular. I would say, kind of filmmaking. I mean, There's also been a kind of terrible class issue. I think with some Mexican
2: directors. I mean, I think mm. both Carlos Regadas and Amate Escalante have been guilty of this in showing the working class and showing servants. Often, sometimes, you know, you feel like it's it's not entirely what they wanted and yet somehow they can't help making their life <laughs> grotesque. Right. Oh, look at these poor people and look how terribly they live right. and you know you feel really kind of uncomfortable. It it can be patronizing to say the least whereas you feel that Quarón is doing something else because who is at the center of the film? It's this young woman and it's Choo. her world and it's her story mm-hmm. and it's her point of view. Um, and i think he has you know bridged that gap or overcome that problem somehow you know very very compellingly
1: yeah yeah that that was that was something i i, I mean i think she's terrific who plays the the, the, the basically the protagonist of, of the story uh, as, as i see it i i even on the, in that sex in, in, in that thread of it with the class i did have i felt like at the end i, I don't know i felt like there was a sort of it felt a little effortful in kind of trying to twin their experiences of trauma the uh the lady of the house and the housekeeper you know that they kind of get pushed together it, it, it always reminded me of like people pushing people together in a, in a group shot it's like okay get all together now it felt like it's, it was weird in the same movie to have the corpus christi massacre and then this kind of very pleasant bringing together of of the family uh, across classes i mean it's, I guess it's, it's, it's a type of realism, but it also felt a little bit um, idyllic in, in a way, just just that kind of
2: um, contentment.
1: But, you know, I guess people can be happy.
2: <laughs> it's kind of really interesting, among other things, seeing Cuaron become a Mexican director again. Right. And of course, you know, we've, we've seen this extraordinary phenomenon in which all these great direct Mexican directors have sort of, in some ways, stopped being Mexican. <laughs> Right. And, um, you know, and clearly, in some ways, it comes across as a political statement as well. But the the lead actress, Yalitza Parithio, who is in real life, um, I believe, a trainee teacher, or a recently right. graduated trainee yeah, yeah. teacher, it's one of those extraordinary performances where someone completely gives themselves to a film and mm. becomes yeah. the person. And you don't believe it's Someone playing a part, you do have a sense of her becoming the person um, yeah. and it's it's very inspiring I felt yeah and and just tremendously
1: tender scenes between her and her friend her her coworker and friend at the household, just a real sense of like their camaraderie and just a convincing sense of their
3: kind of laughing through all the crap that the days throw at them which i liked including a horrible moment well several horrible moments in fact with the heroine's
2: boyfriend who starts oh, off right. first time we see him um oh. just as they're about to go to bed he's doing this ridiculous kind of samurai samurai sword <laughs> right. routine with a curtain rod right. from the shower, shower and then later on uh, it yeah. returns that theme in, in, in a far darker form yes um, yeah. And uh, so it's also very much about a woman's experience in a world of machismo. Yes. No, absolutely.
1: So so that, that's that's Roma. And maybe we can jump to another film, which I think also people don't really know what it's about, uh, again, but has and also has a great deal of anticipation behind it for sort of a different reason. Uh, that would be Sunset from Laszlo Nemes, um, a Hungarian director and... Academy Award winner got, you know, great recognition and 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 also a fair amount of criticism for *Son of Soul. Uh, so, uh, you know, people were wondering what what would be the follow-up to a film that attempts to reinvent the depiction of you know one of the cataclysmic <laughs> events of of our, of our civilization, or lack thereof. Um, so that's so *Sunset*. Um, I <laughs> I heard I don't know how to summarize the story, really, because I have to admit, I, I, I was not always sure. I, well, We'll start with the historical setting.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's set in Budapest in 1910, in the last days of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, so it's the world, um, or it's the world contemporary to, you know, that universe we're familiar with in literature, the world of writers like Stefan Zweig and uh, Joseph Roth and Arthur Schnitzler, but in the kind of the twin city to to Vienna, Budapest, um, the twin city in that empire. And it's, it's very, very bizarre indeed. It's the story of a young woman who goes to apply for a job in a hat company. It's a hat store. She applies for a job as a milliner and it's a hat store that was, was founded by her parents who died in a house fire years earlier. Mm-hmm. And she finds out that she has a mysterious brother. And it's very peculiar because the first 10 minutes you think you're going to get a very elegant piece of poised, white linen costume drama. Um, The film starts with the heroine um, Iris trying on a series of hats and then it goes off in another direction entirely. Suddenly, it becomes extremely violent. There are mysterious men jumping through windows and performing various acts of violence and terrorizing her. Um, Then she assumes a kind of detective role. She becomes a sort of intrepid sleuth going out uh, investigating the mysteries of the city and, you know, what really happened with her brother. Um, And I've got to say, for a a great deal of the film, it's well-nigh incomprehensible, (laughs) but you're just kind of suddenly thrown into this kind of maelstrom of mysterious event. Now, what Nemesh does um, in this film is very much like the period equivalent of what he did in uh, Son of Saul, where you Mm -hmm. you had all the action. You knew that all the action um, in the concentration camp was going on um, in the background, but obscured by the hero's head and shoulders. Here, you see enough to know that Nemesh is using a cast of thousands he's using horses he's using soldiers on parade there are firework displays and it's all in the background right. much of it kind of blurry it's a kind of it's an incredibly opulent film And what puts the touch
3: on that opulence is he's, you know, it's there, but he's actually not bothering to give you, you know, traditional production value. Right. The producers must have been tearing their hair out when they were spending. Yeah. (laughs) We want to
2: see the horses. Oh, the horses just went by in a blur. I mean, it's extraordinary, exorbitant, indulgent filmmaking. And you either object to it totally, as I know a lot of people have, very Mm -hmm. vehemently, or you think, wow, this is some kind of genius. It is flamboyant filmmaking. I think it's on a par with um, the kinds of things that uh, Miklos Jansho used to make in his heyday, Mm -hmm. again with, you know, give me another thousand horses. (laughs) Um, But actually, in some ways, the nearest um, in terms of the difficulty of making sense of it is um, Alexei German's films, you know, like Uh Rousseau of My Car and Hard to Be a God, where you know that you've been kind of immersed in this kind of hellish um, pandemonium, and there is a meaning to it, Mm -hmm. and there is a logic to it, but you don't quite know what it is. All you can do is hang on the heroine's coattails as she gets carried through this extraordinary saga of um hat shop girls being apparently given to the imperial court as prostitutes or victims of violence you don't really know where it's going on and and then it ends with an extraordinary shot which i won't describe but it's like another clearly wildly expensive shot the punchline of which seems to be world war one happened because of hats i don't know um yeah. but it's an incredible i thought it's a really really daring film you yeah. know it's one of those films that's neither masterpiece nor catastrophe but something of both in right. the way that the great kind of you know the great sort of fever dreams of cinema sometimes right. are i was absolutely mesmerized i totally want to see it again i don't yeah. know whether it it kind of you know, you can possibly tick any of those boxes and say it's, it's good or it's bad. It is absolutely its own film. And I was just, um, my jaw was hanging. I mean, you know, for yeah. me, that kind of made... Um, made my, me sit up the way uh, Mother did with you. And right. I can't mm-hmm. say it's a fine film in the way that Roma is indisputably... You know, this is disputably right. a fine <laughs> right. film. Yeah. Um, and it's an extraordinary film, but it's, you know, as as the French would call it, c'est an ovni, it's a right. UFO.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's... And, I mean, what's funny uh, is what, what these films have in common between um, Mother and um, Sunset and and, you know, also thinking of Hard to Be a God, is that they all attempt some sort of first-person filmmaking. Um, And I I think one big difference would be that uh, Hard to Be a God and Hard to Be a God is first-person in that the camera takes the place of the lead actor. So you're like, you know, the only thing you see is like if he extends his chain-mailed glove or something once in a while. Whereas with Mother and Sunset, you see see the, the actor. This is a twist on mother, Mother's technique. I mean, Mother, you know, you see Jennifer Lawrence to and froing and trying to make sense of chaos. Here, it's a, basically a reprise of the technique in Son of Soul, which was, I have to say, puzzling to me for a while. Um, because for Son of Soul, I guess, you know, the argument was, or at least as, you know, as, as it went for me, um, we're just gonna show you the, this, this guy in the concentration camp not everything in the background because partly because how could you even show what's going on in the background how can you even totalize everything that's going on you can only really see the world through this one person's experience and who could capture the horrors um, and the closest you you know get to seeing a larger picture is when you get some of the worst of those horrors and so that made the logic of that made sense so he was interesting because he maintains that technique but it wasn't because, at least I don't think it was because, what the, what's going on here is, you know, unfilmable. It, it's, it's, it's sort of a concerted effort to keep things sort of mysterious. I mean, maybe that is the part of the point. Uh, I mean, this, this whole idea of an underground, uh, because her brother seems to run some sort of, something between like a mafia and a rebel movement. I couldn't really tell, that in some ways appears to be just as abusive towards women as, as the aristocracy is. So it, it all seems like this very dark type of chaotic world underneath the surface of all the trappings of the hats and and, and everything. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's a true thing that we haven't really seen on screen in a way, trying to render, you know, World War I was it really such a surprise because there was this rot, you know, beneath somehow. So in that sense, it made sense. But as a viewing experience, as interested as, as I was in it, it was tough <laughs> because you, th- that feeling of withholding and, and deprivation is really hard to, to go through that long with, especially with an actor who whose face is sometimes up to holding the screen all the time in terms of expressively, not always, because who really would be, who could be?
2: It doesn't really vary very much. This is the interesting thing. I yeah. mean, he seems to have deliberately well, he seems to have instructed this actress, Yuli Jakob, or perhaps he's deliberately chosen her because that is her look, but she has this extraordinary stare.
0: Yeah.
2: And, you know, she plays the female detective, as it were, who is trying to looking through the darkness yeah. of uh, Austro-Hungarian society. Right. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's just this extraordinary look that haunts you all, all the way through the film that has this kind of intense, obsessive quality. And you know, in terms of a strong female protagonist of the sort that makes you really uncomfortable every time she turns around and looks your way, I mean, she is just one of the extraordinary presences in this festival. And,
1: And also makes you uncomfortable because you don't quite know. I mean, you know, she has a certain mission to uncover the truth, what's behind the curtain, but yet you also ultimately don't know which direction she's going to go in terms of, you know, what path she'll choose for her survival. Um, which, in a way, you can't blame her because of the options. <laughs> so there's also that, that element. And she does things, I think, that maybe will surprise yeah. some people and aren't really treated as big things, partly because you're with her perspective. Um, so that's another way, that the, way in which the movie's quite yeah. unnerving. Not, it's not giving you a kind of moral center. Yeah. Not that you need one. But. And,
2: and I think that given the story set in 1910, I think he's trying to capture certain elements of silent era narrative, you know, mm. that kind of crazy torrent of sinister events. You know, it's yeah. early Fritz Lang. It's yeah. Spione or whatever. Uh, uh, Dr. Mabuza's stories. It's Fayyad. You know, yeah. all that is in there, yeah. given a kind of, you know, Yanshou type... <laughs> um, yeah. Um, high intensity, high density. You know,
3: there is never a, an empty patch on the screen. Everything true. is crackling yeah. with activity all Yeah, the time. And, and, and Yangtze also really rings true for me as well, just in terms
1: of having some, you know, really bravura technique for a historical event that maybe you're not familiar with. So it's not that it always illuminates it, but it creates this intensity
3: around it that, you know, is, is, is illuminated in another way. And it's worth saying the hats are beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Let's let that be the final word. I hope it's, it's sort of the phantom thread of hats. That's <laughs> true. I hope that's the, the poor quote. The
1: hats are beautiful. Jonathan Romney, film comment. Um, actually, this might be a good time to take a break. Uh, so we'll be right back after this message.
0: From one of the most influential filmmakers of all time, Andrei Tarkovsky, comes a stunning new restoration of his epic masterwork, Andrei Rublev. Ingmar Bergman called Tarkovsky the greatest the one who invented a new language true to the nature of film. Tarkovsky's Andrei Rublev chronicles the life of Russia's great medieval icon painter. Tarkovsky uses stunning imagery and a dreamlike narrative to explore the ecstasy of creation and the agony of faith. The newly restored Andrei Rublev is now screening at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Tickets are available at filmlink.org.
1: Well, moving right along um, from millinery... Uh, to off-duty police, <laughs> to off-duty law enforcement, we can talk about another film uh, completely different from the past two, I think, uh, except maybe in the level of chaos that, that happens um, and, and also the level of, of technical control, you'd, you'd have to say, and that is Dragged Across Concrete. Uh, Dragged Across Concrete is le, Neu- le nouveau film de <laughs> S. Craig Zoller, uh, who's here... Was it just last year? Just last year uh, with, with uh, um, Brol and Cell, cell Block. Too. Yes, Cell Block, 99. Um, uh, also very controlled, um, you know, supersized crime film. And this is sort of fresh on our minds, um, this one. Uh, Dragged Across Concrete, it centers on two cops, uh, you know, buddies in a, uh, who uh, one is Mel Gibson, he's nearing reti- nearing retirement, uh, and you know, he's sort of getting fed up. And Vince Vaughn plays his younger, um, you know, perhaps not as not as cynical uh, cop yet. Um, although they managed to make that kind of very formulaic sounding pairing not sound not feel too formulaic. formulaic. Um, and, you know, it starts out with them doing a bust uh, and then the after effects of that bust is that they are put off duty. Uh, and to fill the free time and also to try to get a boatload of money to for their separate purposes, um, they they get involved in uh, caper. Sounds far too carefree. Uh, they they try to try
3: to get involved in, in a crime deal. It's much darker than a caper. Yes, it's much darker. Yeah, than a caper. caper sounds really kind of joyous. This is much much yeah, not harsher. At all, not at all a caper. Um, and
1: you know that what happens. I mean, the rest of the movie is almost like it's almost an hour plus is the action set pieces related to the action suspense set pieces related to the unfolding of this this crime job that they're trying first to kind of infiltrate and then uh and you know turn away from disaster and i have to say that i i like this movie on the level of a crime film uh and you know, Zahler is a director who has planned every inch. Speaking of planning, every inch of what's on screen. Uh, this is this is shot in, you, you know, you'd have to say like comic strip widescreen. Uh, the, the placement, everything is just so. Uh, the lighting is, you know, is also, you know, rather extremely delineated. You know, there's one shot early on from an ex-con who comes home, you know, is talking to his mother, uh, who who has started uh, taking John's for, uh, in in the apartment while he's gone. And all I could fixate on that scene after a while was this single beam of light on the left side of the screen from a hanging lamp that it looked like it was like drawn in in like pastel or crayon like there's that kind of attention going on and on on that level you know there's suspenseful there's this kind of over (laughs) over hard boiled dialogue which at times uh, you know verges into the. You know Tarantino-esque
3: of like stuff people can barely speak. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of baroque. Baroque is the uh, yeah. word. Yeah. Um, 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 at one point, um, Mel
2: Gibson's boss, played by Don Johnson, warns him not to be on this game too long, otherwise he's going to turn into quote a human steamroller <laughs> covered with spikes and fueled by bile. Actually, I know a few critics like that. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's. <laughs> That's yeah. That's a good example of the kind of. I mean, yeah. He, he he manages to make his way through that. So I mean, on that level, I mean, did you respond to it as well? Just as like a
2: crime well, through- I hadn't seen his other films, mm-hmm. and I'd heard they were very violent. And I thought, oh right, okay. Um, <laughs> Mel Gibson. Um, I you know, like many critics here, I I had my uh, review written in advance just in case I didn't like <laughs> it, and it simply said dragged across concrete. I'd rather be <laughs> the end. Um, no, but I found it was absolutely terrific. I didn't know what to expect at all. Uh, it was a real kick. And for me, it was the sort of American thriller that, you know, just doesn't really get made these days. Mm-hmm. And that takes crime you know corruption and redemption and their ramifications and violence uh, and character very seriously so i got the same kind of kick from it that i got from andrew dominic's killing him softly killing him softly a few mm-hmm. years ago and i i'd say you know there are definitely kind of traces here of michael mann when he was good uh, mm-hmm. a little bit of Sidney Lumet, you know, it's mm-hmm. in that tradition rather than the Tarantino tradition. No, no, yeah, it's, um, not,
1: it's not removed from its material. But in I
2: found it really compelling. And I mean, the mm-hmm. writing is, I think, very good. And there's a lot of very kind of cynical joking early on between the Gibson and Vince Vaughan and Don Johnson characters uh, about um, you know, racism and, uh, oh, you know, these days they won't even let you, da, da, da. And it's very, it's very clever, and he kind of warns them that Don Johnson is there as their superior warns them, well, of course, you know, these days it's really about, there are digital eyes everywhere. It's not about behaving right, it's about being seen to behave right. Right. And, (laughs) of course, it's a brilliant piece of casting um, to have Mel Gibson, given his history. Um, And I thought the film plays with that very cleverly. Now, I'm not entirely sure whether it's uh, a comment on racism and institutionalized racism or whether it's kind of trying to have its racist cake and eat it, you know, in a sense that it's kind of coming up with these sometimes really shocking lines, but kind of making you say, but it's okay. It's not only a racist cop saying it, but it's a racist cop who is knowingly, you know, reveling in in playing the part of a racist cop. So, you know, I'm not entirely sure how sincere it is, but... um, as, as a very slow-burning, disturbing, hard-boiled action drama, it's mm. extremely good. But, but the point is also it starts from the point of view of this young African-American guy who's got right. out of prison and knows that he has to go back to crime. In yeah. fact, everyone in the film has to be involved in crime for reasons of survival you know their right. backstories were all set up yeah. brilliantly you know they have to kind of feed their families one way or another so it's yeah. all done out of love
3: and commitment and right. it takes them all to hell um yeah. but um i i would i want to just because i did mm, like that act, yeah. actor at great i am blanking on the name tory of kittles tory
1: and kittles, i haven't yeah. seen
2: him before he's in films like uh, olympus has fallen and um mm-hmm. He, he was in uh, sons of Anarchy, and it's a mm-hmm. fantastic performance yes. and I think he's going to be yeah. a really major presence yeah
1: yeah I I, I agree with that because there's always a little something winking about both Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn that that kind of take you out of it and and, and uh, when Tory Kittle Kittles gets on screen it kind of takes it to a realer place yeah I mean I I, I thought not that I hang out with cops so a lot, but I did feel that there was something very true about the cops, kind of like deeply cynical, always fucking with each other, kind of banter that they have. You know, I, I thought that was true. I, yeah, I, I then it, it, it also goes, you know, in a couple of places where just the, the especially with one of the villains that, just you know, the, just the kind of revolting things they say and do feel gratuitous and I mean, this is not a, these aren't people who are going to be inoffensive, but, but, you know, sometimes it, 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 it it did feel a bit calculated in terms of that he's going right up to the line that you're, you know, you're talking about. It felt a little, a little like, yeah, able to keep
3: things in quotes a little bit and actually he goes a lot yeah. further than um other um aficionados of violence <laughs> in in terms of uh, you
2: know mounting the bloodshed i mean i should say there are entrails in this film there are. i've never seen that in a heist movie <laughs> no. before i've never seen a heist it's, it's true. It's a different. there's yeah. a thing about you know don't puncture his liver oh my god and you just <laughs> kind of turn away and uh, yeah
1: well well and then and then even in that moment it comes laced with actually kind of disgusting racial invective even at that moment and and it's it's you know it's it it really does it it's it doesn't quite it doesn't quite sit well because also you don't i can't say you ever really get a sense of that that criminal as a character he's just kind of a guy who just seems like a piece of shit <laughs> basically and there's nothing else to him other than as this delivery mechanism for offensive shit that's also why it feels like really? <laughs> you know, and and then when you see who is the one getting eviscerated, it also gets kind of uncomfortable. So I don't know. I mean, again, like it's a you know, it's a criminal world, underworld, an awful place that
3: they're they're foraging into. So it's not surprising that that they're gonna be, there's going to be this misbehavior. I know for two, the three criminals, two are completely faceless yeah. masked men,
1: yeah,
2: and yeah.
3: one is a sinister, cold-blooded German. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, I know. So it's the old uh, die-hard. <laughs> exactly. Out. It's it's right. Yeah. I mean, Tarantino
1: at least would have had the decency to make the German an actual Nazi. You know, just go right step across uh, and make clear so you know but yeah again in terms of the the uh, the, the, the as, a, as a crime, they're a little satisfying but still these things hard hard to shake and and also that the inciting event for their dismissal you know it's, it's this is if they were viral video in the 70s this is what it would have happened to all those vigilante cops who got kicked off the force, it would have been because of viral video, you know, and that's what happens in the beginning of this movie. Uh, You know, an instance of police brutality is caught on video. So even that felt like kind of like, I dare you to say something about my plot point, you know, but, you know, I guess he's uh, topical. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so that's, that's dragged across concrete. That's what it feels like to be dragged across concrete. I think we've probably... Expand the uh, <laughs> a lot of human experience there. Uh, I mean, you know, the, of course, Suspiria and the favorite and the Cone Brothers also showed. Um, we can maybe save those for for another uh, podcast. And let's, do you have any quick words you want to say about Sus- Sus- Suspiria, maybe?
2: Yeah, Suspiria. I think is. I mean, I've, i I became a fan of Luca Guadagnino in Venice when I saw I Am Love a few mm. years ago. I haven't liked anything he's done as much, mm. and I could not get excited at all. I mean, I liked what's it called, the swimming pool remake, A uh, Big Splash. Big splash um, yeah. I didn't warm to um, Call Me By Your Name, uh, the Mm. way a lot of people did. This one uh, is a completely different vein. It's a remake of Dario Argento. In some ways, it's an attempt to raise the ante on Argento's original by introducing Bader Meinhof and Holocaust themes. It's set in Berlin Mm -hmm. um, in the 70s. Um, And the dance school this time is not a ballet school, but they're doing modern dance. Um, under the uh, BDI of Tilda Swinton, of course, um, who also apparently, well, let's say manifestly appears in another part, but we're not supposed to say that. I mean, there's a lot of kind of game playing going on. Um, And and the thing for me is, I mean, it is a film of considerable brilliance, the Mm -hmm. way it's put together Mm -hmm. and some of the editing and some of the extreme Mm -hmm. dazzling visuals are really extraordinary. So I went with it for about 75%, and then when the grand kind of satanic hoedown takes place, <laughs> it was sort of like Hexen, the Broadway musical, and I thought, <laughs> really? And, um, you know, I hate to say it, it just, for me, it just got kind of silly at that point, but there's a wider thing here that that worries me. Uh, which is, I really felt, and this is something that that I also became aware of in um, Scorsese's Shutter Island, hmm. I really felt very uncomfortable with the Holocaust being used as kind of both backstory material and a source of uh, ready-made emotional charge for a right. genre movie. And it felt kind... I think my inner... My, you know, <laughs> My inner conscience, let's say my inner Claude lansman conscience came out there and I, <laughs> yeah. I kind of thought, no, no, you don't do this sort of thing. This is sort of inappropriate. I feel really uncomfortable in it because the, the Holocaust has become something that's kind of readily available. But if you were to use the kind of criteria that are used about other serious issues, it might be appropriate to say this is kind of cultural appropriation in a, in a, in a very mm. unpleasant way. It, it, it did very much trouble me. Yeah. Um, And, you know, that famous thing, uh, the famous um, French uh, critical argument about the tracking shot in Capo that uh, Jacques Rivette got very incensed about, you know, the idea of showing uh, a a moment from from, uh, the Holocaust and making it sort of emotionally charged in a kind of intrusive way. Right. This kind of is, this film has in its own way Although it's in the script, it's the the written equivalent of the tracking shot in Capo.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and the odd thing for me is that it it could have been there just as kind of this emanation, this kind of historical like like core that you know is there but you don't dare speak of. But then there's an epilogue that basically spells out exactly how they are using it, and also takes it to just another weird level dealing with guilt that i i couldn't quite believe what i was hearing it was it was and at at that point i yeah it was i just wanted to pretend that this epilogue section because the whole thing in a trend i have (laughs) i've railed against before is split up into chapters i guess to make it more i think we have to blame las von trier for that trend i guess so yeah although he meant them ironically and now look what happened (laughs) Yeah, but this this epilogue is literally someone sitting down on a bed and explaining to someone else what it all means. That that took it to another because actually, despite a lot of, for some reason, advanced like nervous or anxious buzz around it, I I largely was was on its kind of ridiculous, scary ride uh, for, for for much for most of it.
2: I mean, it's yeah. incredibly watchable and fun, and yeah. I mean, it's nonstop and it crackles with energy uh but i found it sort of it it takes itself a little too seriously yeah yeah and uh actually um people uh, i know who who you know who really know modern dance yeah. tell me that <laughs> That was not good choreography. Wait, the dance was I not authentic? Possibly say, no.
1: <laughs> If there's one thing I wanted from this horror movie, it was the authentic dance. Because isn't that what he said about He said, like, the one thing... It's absurd. Luca Guadagnino is quoted as saying, like, the one thing about Suspiria is that they didn't do a lot of dancing. in it. I wanted to have more dancing. Is that what you go and see that movie and come away with... So I don't know maybe he he came in with different goals than than many people might have but uh yeah also it must be said a certain amount of straight up body horror and I would probably say issues with the f- female bodies at, at play in this film as well which uh I I, I don't know it's it's it, I yeah <laughs> it's just also kind of fascinating horrifying uh, to watch on, on unfold but uh yeah, that's, that's that's Suspiria, and more still to come. I think coming up we have the Paul Greengrass film, uh, twenty two July, and Brady
2: Corbett's second film Vox Lux. Vox Lux,
1: yes, uh, an, another one. One doesn't quite know what to expect of uh, he last year he, not last year, but two or three years
3: ago he had Childhood of a Leader, a uh, pretty divisive film. So a lot, and this one's got music again by Scott Walker, oh, yeah. but also songs by Sia oh so okay well we'll see what the choreography is like in this one (laughs) okay all right so that brings us to the end uh thanks very much jonathan thanks very much
1: you've been listening to the film comment podcast with music by greg eindji you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes google play or stitcher film comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the film society of lincoln center since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.